You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Guidepost. Willie Goldsmith here with the American Saltwater Guides Association. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, You know, here at ASGA, we talk a lot about this idea of better business through conservation, about having a lot of fish, about how having a lot of fish in the water, having sustainable fisheries is really good for for the economy from a recreational fisheries standpoint. You know, it's really a, a key message that we get behind. And I think it's important to step back sometimes and realize that it isn't just our sector necessarily that benefits from that kind of philosophy. And, you know, I we wanted to bring in a different perspective this week. And, and in order to kind of help us see that new perspective, we're bringing in Ben Martens from the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. So, Ben, thanks so much for joining us this week. Willie, thank you for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I know we uh, we saw each other at a meeting a few weeks ago and and got to talking and and thought it was high time for you to get on the guidepost. So we're we're thrilled to have you here today. And um, you know, for for listeners coming from around the country, can you tell us a little bit about where in Maine you are? Sure, our office is in beautiful Brunswick, Maine. We're about half hour north of the mecca of Portland, Maine, which is where you go to get all the fantastic food and fun times that you need for a city life in Maine. But um, yeah, we, we are in, it's, it's a coastal town, but it's not really a fishing community, but we work with fishermen, commercial fishermen up and down the entire coast of Maine. So uh, Brunswick was a, a great place to put up our shingle and um, kind of bring people together. Awesome. Yeah. And I know a lot of our, a lot of our folks spend a lot of time uh, striper, striper fishing up in that area as well. Uh, you know, stripers and ground fish and tuna and all that stuff are all, are all up there. And we've got guys in Portland all the way up, you know, fishing the Kennebec and beyond. So certainly a, a zone that I think is pretty familiar to a lot of our listeners, but it's great to get kind of a, kind of a different sort of perspective today. Uh, and Ben, before we get into talking about, you know, MFCA and what you guys are, or MCFA, excuse me, and, and what you guys are about, too many acronyms flying around, man. Uh, I think it would be helpful to just kind of hear a bit about you. You know, you're in kind of that that fisheries policy advocacy space on the on the commercial side. And obviously we're on we're on the rec side. And it's it's interesting to kind of hear people's journeys and how they how they get where they are. And so it'd be great to hear a bit about you know, how you found your way to the uh, Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. Yeah, so I am, um, I'm not a fisherman. I don't come from a fishing family. I grew up in the woods of New Hampshire, uh, but really believe deeply in the- It's okay, we'll we'll allow it, we'll allow it. Let the woods of New Hampshire, okay? It's- <laughs> Yeah, well, well, yeah. There's good, there's good ice fishing out there. You know, we got, we can make do with that. There are no, there's a lot of great fishing. There was actually growing up, I used to just hop on my bike with a fishing rod and go down the road. And I think I spent an entire summer chasing the same river, uh, rainbow trout. It was the same one that I caught day after day. Um, but that was that's how I spent an entire summer. My dad joked that it was just that one trout kept getting bigger and bigger off my, uh, off of what I was putting the uh, in the water for that river. So. Um, but I, I did, I came to Maine for college and that was where I learned about the fisheries of Maine um, and really about fisheries overall. Like I, I didn't even grow up eating seafood, right? Like it was, 
It was one of those things. It was a little treat once in a while. Um, but I came to Maine and I was came to Maine to, to learn about environmental policy. And that's what I went to college for. And I had a professor in college who said, you know, if you want to get involved in an environmental issue that you can fix in the next 50 years, do fisheries, because we are just trying to, we're just starting to figure out how to manage our fisheries. We haven't been using science for very long. We haven't been managing for them for very long. And fish have this amazing ability to rebound really fast. Um, and it's still like a, a space where we're, we're figuring stuff out. So it, it was, that was really the, the impetus for me to start digging into and understanding what was happening in, uh, in fisheries. Uh, I like that optimism. I really do. That's, uh, that's encouraging to hear. <laughs> yeah, no. And so I'm at this point, I think I'm close to 15 years into my 50 year fix of fisheries. So uh, I don't know that I would I'd say that I've made a lot of progress at all of our fisheries. But it, it is one of those things that I kind of hang my hat on to when we're talking with fishermen, when we're talking with advocates, um, when we're talking with communities, right, about this opportunity that our oceans hold, and that through good management and good science, we can get get to that better future. So I, that's why that's where I'm here, right? But we also, I I personally really believe that in order to we'll have durable policy on the water, you need to bring those who use those natural resources into the decision-making process early and often. And if you don't do that, you're not going to create durable solutions that fishermen are bought into, um, that marine users are bought into, whether that's commercial or recreational. And so that's, that's why I ended up at a nonprofit doing fisheries policy work with fishermen. Uh, I started down on Cape Cod. I was there for about three years for the Cape Cod Commercial Fishermen's Alliance. Uh, where I cut my teeth and learned about fisheries policy. Uh, and then I got hired by a small group of fishermen in Maine who said, we want to create a voice that's fighting for sustainable fisheries, for our marine ecosystem, for our fishing communities, for an opportunity in the future to have fish and have these, these iconic species like cod and haddock and flounder coming across our docks and feeding our communities. So that's, that's kind of the story. So they, I was hired by fishermen to come in and build a nonprofit with them to create a voice and fight for that, that future that we kind of want to hold up on a pedestal for um, small boats and uh, sustainable fisheries, vibrant fishing communities. And um, yeah, that's, that's my story. That's awesome. That's quite the quite the journey, you know, making it up the coast. I mean, obviously, as a as as a mass holes listeners know, I'm a little biased to the Cape, but I, I have a fond place in my heart for uh, for Brunswick as well. So it's uh, it's great to hear that the work continues. Same general body of water. So well, you no know, love I, lost uh, there, I promise. I was I, I lived on Cape Cod for three years and you can see me because we've got a little video screen going on. Your your listeners cannot. But I'm a little pasty. All right. And so when you live on Cape Cod. The things you can do for fun are sailing, fishing, surfing, or hanging out at the beach. And I, I had this constant level of stress about getting sunburned that just made living there like it was a great place to live and learn. But long term, I would have had to spend so much money on sunscreen, it wouldn't have been worth it. So, um, yeah. you know, no, no, that's fair. I mean, I, I've definitely lost friends because they get embarrassed when I go fishing with them. And I'm wearing, I think the only parts of my body that are exposed are like my forehead and then the holes in my Crocs. You know, that's about it between the pants and the long sleeve shirt and the buff and the hat. I mean, I'm with you. I'm a pasty guy myself. You know, you have to make these sacrifices and it can get a little dicey. So I, I appreciate where you're coming from. I, I'm glad the climate up there is a little bit more conducive to that complexion. We get a lot of fog in Maine. It's great. 
<laughs> so tell me a little bit about your members. You had mentioned, you know, a couple of guys were, were kind of clamoring for um, for some support up there. And I'm, it, it strikes me that Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, you guys really have a really multifaceted view of fisheries, right? And that part of that is certainly what we're going to talk about, which is getting into the, the nitty gritty of fisheries policy and the on the water activities. But you really seem to take a, a holistic approach to what goes on. Um, in those fishing communities. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. The fishermen who started the organization were ground fish fishermen. So guys that caught haddock and cod and flounders. Um, and that fishery, historically, you know, that was what we built the nation on was catching those 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 fish, especially cod. And it's been struggling for decades now. And so in the early 2000s, um, and then in 2010, we eventually made the transition into an allocation-based system of management calls, called catch shares. And, um, or no, called sectors, it was a type of catch shares. Sorry, you guys, I'm sure you all understand that though, considering uh, what's happening in our, our nation's fisheries around the world. Um, but in that transition, uh, the fishermen needed some help and support. And so that's where our organization was really started out of was creating that voice, but also support the transition to sectors and making sure that the small boats in Maine had a, a place to go to for help and support as these new, very complex regulations came in, in place. Uh, so that's where we started. And we really engaged heavily on the policy in the policy arena on ground fish. But in order to have sustainable ground fish fisheries, you also need to have forage in the water. And so we needed to work on some forage issues in the Gulf of Maine when it came to herring and menhaden, um, other forage stocks, river herring. And then we had fishermen that needed help and support in the scallop fishery and fishermen that needed help and support in uh, protecting some important closed areas in the Gulf of Maine that we went out and fought to keep closed. And so, you know, as you start working with commercial fishermen and we started very narrowly focused on ground fish, you solve one problem or you address a problem or you start having a conversation about a problem and you realize that there's all these other pieces that you have to address at the same time, right? You can't just address the one symptom, you have to address the root cause. And that often takes a lot of digging behind those layers of um, buildup in the policy arena, in the marketing side and working waterfront within community. So our organization that was founded to be a voice in policy has grown significantly to embrace a lot of different fisheries um, and a lot of the different needs of our communities. So whether it's advocating or figuring out how to advocate for working waterfront in um, the coast of Maine, which is very diverse and widespread uh, when it comes to working waterfront access and the needs of those different communities. Uh, we have a fisherman wellness program. One of the things we really um, started to experience through COVID was that the mental health and physical wellness of fishermen was often overlooked and forgotten about on the commercial side. And so we've invested heavily in building out a program and a toolbox to help fishermen there. Uh, and we have a, a fisherman feeding Mainers program where we go out, we buy seafood, uh, buy fish from fishermen, process it locally and donate that to the local food insecure populations in Maine. We started that program because we lost markets it during COVID uh, for our, our flaky whitefish that usually ends up on, on the tables of restaurants. In reality, though, like we learned so much about the marketplace that now we've been engaging heavily in the idea of like, how do we do marketing? How do we do branding? We've got a value added product now called Maine Coast Monkfish Stew that we sell in about 50 places in Maine that like feeds back into our program, but it also builds a... Uh, a little bit of a buffering when you know the monkfish price starts to 
to drop, we can step in and buy it at a stable price from our fishermen. And so we kind of realized that as a nonprofit, as an association, that if you just go in and try and solve the one the one problem in policy, um, and whether that's accountability on the water, camera monitoring, um, uh, you know, fleet diversity, like all of these things, we spent significant time and energy um, to address. At the end of the day, you need to be looking at it holistically in order to have the impact on the people in in those communities that we care deeply about. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, Ben, but I know that Tony isn't here and he would be very mad at me if I didn't ask more about this monkfish stew and what you guys have going on here. So you can get, can you give me a little bit more info? I, I think a lot of our folks know what monkfish are, but I think starting right there, you know, how did this come about? I mean, that's a pretty, pretty cool product you don't hear about too often. <laughs> no. So monkfish is, uh, it's it's a sea monster, right? So it is it's it's all tail and head, and you catch it when you're uh, targeting ground fish uh, with a, a trawl net or a gill net. And historically, that was like it's a very uh, it's very well sought in the French cuisine. And so in the '80s, Julia Child did this thing where she like dumped a giant monkfish on the table during her show, and it became very cool for a brief period of time. I mean, in the I mean they really are, they really are emblematic of the uglier they are, the better they taste. Cause they basically, I mean, you know, wolffish are close and they're obviously off the table now, but monkfish really, I mean, God, oh, what a, yeah. what a creature. They, they are, they are ugly suckers, but they, uh, they're different than like we we tend to in new England, especially we love our flaky white fish, right? Like if you're on, if you're in Massachusetts, you drift towards the cod in Maine, we tend to drift towards the haddock a little bit more, but we love flaky white fish and monkfish is not that right. Monkfish has a texture more like a, a lobster when you cook it than a, a ground fish. And so it's, it's sometimes referred to as the poor man's lobster. It's really flavorful. It's like kind of buttery. It's really good, but when you start, we were using that product, we were using monkfish as part of our donation product. And so we were giving this out to a lot of people who were dealing with food insecurity. So we had it processed, it was cut, it was, um, we were handed it to them. And then they'd get home and they'd cook it. And they'd say, wait a minute, is this how it's supposed to taste? Is this how it's supposed to like, it's still a little chewy, like, they, they were a lot of uncertainty with that. Uh, and so we were like, well, we've got fishermen catching this stock, it's a sustainable stock. We need to be building market for this. What do we need to do if we're going to be donating this to folks? What, how can we help? So we went, we got a, a small grant and we worked with a company in Maine called Hurricanes Premium Soups and Chowders, and uh, they make fantastic soups. And so we worked with them to make this, this seafood stew uh, that we put into these pouches. It's frozen that you can just basically like put into boiling water to reheat and you got a delicious meal. So we started donating that. And the results that we got back were people loved it. They were just over the moon for it. So we said, maybe we can do something with this beyond just donating it. Maybe we can start selling this and create a feedback loop into our program of both like using up more fish and then some money to keep a, a very expensive program to administer with our Feeding Mainers program, kind of keep that shored up for itself. And uh it's been a hit. It's been really fantastic. It's, there's a lot of flavor, but it's it's we have it in restaurants throughout Maine. We've got it in supermarkets in uh, 12 Hannafords right now, and then a bunch of other smaller retailers. But it's basically a box. It's in a box and a frozen pouch. And so 
you know, it's, it's my go-to meal when, you know, I can't get home in time. I can take it out of the pouch, throw it in some boiling water and I've got, you know, right. a ready-made stew ready to go. It's, it's, yeah, it's, awesome. the, it's the main, it's the Mainers ramen. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, oh, I, 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 I never thought about it that way, but I mean, <laughs> I will say, I feel like monkfish is a pretty intimidating fish from both <laughs> the way it looks, but also, you know, the way that the, the, you know, the, the yield that you get and what do you do with this? And as you said, do I, did I do it right? Is this how it's supposed to taste? And that's great that you guys have kind of, you know, created a, created a spot for it in kind of a, a broader market. So, uh, you know, to that point, I just wanted to step back, you know, talking about who you guys represent. And as I recall, monkfish are often like a gillnet product. And I was just wondering if you could just mention, you know, of, of your members, like, you know, what kinds of gears are they using? You know, how are these guys most often fishing to bring products to the table? Yeah. So we work with a variety of fishermen. Uh, we work with groundfish fishermen who catch, use, they use some hooks. We have some guys that are out there using automated jigging machines to try and target, you know, cod is a really limiting fish in the Gulf of Maine right now. And so we, we've been working with the Nature Conservancy and other partners to try and find ways to help fishermen avoid cod. So we've got a handful of guys who've been playing with hook and line um, and automated jigging machines where you can kind of like jig the pollock up off the bottom to avoid the cod. Uh, you guys, I'm sure your, your, your fleet knows all about chasing pollock and getting them up and, you know, that that fun you can do with those. Um, and then we've got gillnet fishermen and those are, you know, you put a gillnet in the water. It's got a anchor on, on each side and a buoy on the top to hold it up. You leave it in the water. Typically our fishermen tend those. So they stay out with them. Um, they haul through them and the fish cod and haddock, uh, not too many flounder, but cod, haddock, pollock, hake, uh, monkfish will swim into those nets and get caught. You pull those back in and then we've got trawlers. And um, we typically in Maine, the Gulf of Maine, we have smaller in the 40, 50, 60 foot range trawlers that catch a variety of groundfish species that includes monkfish as a, it's not a, a regulated groundfish stock. It's under a, a different management plan, but it's a, a bycatch of the ground fit during the groundfish fishing. And so you'll have those guys that are catching flounders and pollock and hake. Um, because we're in a quota-based management system, you really have to be careful when you're fishing because if you catch too much of the wrong species, you have to pay for that in quota. And it can, it can really um, put a hurt on your bottom line if you catch a lot of cod or if you catch a lot of hake right now. Those are limiting stocks in this fishery. So we work with fishermen to try and figure out how to configure your gear differently and, and how to fish more selectively to make sure that you're avoiding those stocks that we need to be avoiding and targeting those stocks that are both worth something at the dock that are available in the quota market and um, that our local communities want to eat. And so that's, that's been um, one of the interesting things is, you know, watching these fishermen innovate as our stocks change and as management evolves. Yeah. And, and to that point, you know, I was looking around on, on the website and I saw, you know, this phrase fish smarter, not harder that really kind of stuck with me. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that. Cause I feel like that could mean a couple things, right? Part of it could be what you're talking about, you know, being more efficient and, and not harming the reefs, you know, harming the, harming the fisheries with lots of bycatch and discards, but then also thinking about your product and how do you, you know, maximize the value out of a given fish that you catch. Right. And I'm, I'm just wondering kind of what is what does that kind of phraseology mean to you when it comes to what you guys try to do with your members? At this point, we've made we've made a transition in our management where it used to be that the most successful fishermen were the ones that just grinded it out. Right. And that works when you have a lot of fish in the ocean and you have a time limit 
like what we used to operate under, which was called days at sea. And so you had a certain amount of hours that you were allowed to fish. And so you needed to go and catch as many fish as quickly as possible and get them back to shore. And um, that allowed certain people who are good at certain things to succeed. We are now in a management system in groundfish, at least, which is limited. There's only a certain amount of quota out in the ocean uh, that's available to be caught. And so you need to be minimizing your costs and maximizing your return if you want to make a go of it as a, as a fisherman in the groundfish fishery in New England. And that's, that's really hard. Um, but so that's, that's where we are trying to help fishermen think about how they spend their time. And if you have so much quota on your tape, uh, you know, that you can use and whether that's getting access to more quota using certain types of gear to get higher, higher quality fish, uh, higher value fish, but it's, it's all about planning and thinking about your future and your year, as opposed to simply reacting and fighting through, um, and pushing through the hard, the hard work, which, you know, you know, a lot of fishermen, um, out, out in the, the working waterfront, but these guys work their asses off constantly, right? They are, they have motors that I'm envious of when it comes to their ability to just keep working there, working harder and harder and harder. But at a certain point, you're getting diminishing returns on that. And that's where we are now in the ground fish fishery. So it's about innovation. It's about streamlining business. And it's really about getting maximizing the value of every pound that you're pulling out of the ocean. And to, to that last point, I'm just wondering kind of how do you do that, right? So is that is that marketing? Is that fish care? Is that how you're catching them? Is that all of those things? You know, I think it's it's something that, you know, I think I was talking to you like, you know, I've, I've seen this model, right? It, you, see, you see it kind of emerge, you know, kind of independently in different areas. And it's awesome to see. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, in your specific case, like, what are the strategies, you know, without letting us peek behind the curtain too much, like, you know, as an association, like, what's the value add that you guys can can, can offer for these guys? Yeah, I mean, we don't have a curtain that we hide behind here. We're all we're very transparent in what we are trying to do. Uh, so, you know, we have a couple of different things, tools that we can lean on, but mostly it's trying to make sure that we can help fishermen decrease their costs up front. And we do that through working with the Nature Conservancy on some access to quota at um, reduced rates for, for local fishermen. Uh, and then we kind of do analysis, look at what's happening in other fisheries. We help fishermen diversify into other fisheries like scallops um, or monkfish or, um, you know, lobster you know there's other fisheries that you can participate in so it's like if you want to go and make money as a fisherman in the ground fish fishery you can kind of do it a couple of different ways one is you specialize and you just chase ground fish year round and that's really hard for a smaller boat a larger boat can get away with that or you start to diversify your income stream and so for part of the year you go and chase scallops or part of the year you chase um forage fish for for lobster bait right so it's kind of how do you build those things so you can strategically look at your business plan and have a plan and every plan gets broken immediately right but it's still better to walk into a a year with an idea of what you want to accomplish when you're looking at your your fishing business and that's one of the things that we really encourage our fishermen to do when we work with them on on that side uh, on the other side of the equation though it's all marketing right it's all telling story and and we are not a marketing association we we don't you know while we have a seafood product at our main coach monkfish stew like we aren't actually selling seafood 
what we are doing is we are selling an idea and a concept. And my greatest hope is that we can get people to eat more local fish. The best way that I can, the best thing I can do to support our fishermen is to get people eating more fish. That's the, that's amazing. And it's, and it's what these fishermen want to do. Um, you know, while many of your members are able to go out and, and chase chase stripers or some ground fish um, to feed themselves. Most of the country doesn't have the capacity to go out and catch their own fish to eat, and so that's what our commercial fishing fleet is able to do: is is bring food to the table and a, a high quality, delicious protein. So, one of the things I'm most proud of with the monkfish stew isn't that we've been able to create this delicious product; it's that by us getting out in front and talking about monkfish over and over and over again. We've got anecdotal reports from all of the different seafood markets that we work with that monkfish sales are up 100 to 200%, right? People are eating, going in and ordering monkfish from them because we're talking about it all the time. And almost right, every, it's an if you build it, they will come. Yep, right? right, and like almost every restaurant in Portland right now over the course of the year has a special on monkfish at one point or another. And it's because like we are talking about it so much that when somebody sees it, like, oh, I heard about that. I'll buy that. I'll give it a try. Oh, it's on this restaurant. It's this. So, you know, that's, we can only do so much as a nonprofit in this space, but telling the story and explaining the why to people that it's important to buy local, that it's important to support local fish, uh, local fishermen, and that it's a good idea to eat seafood. Um, that's, that's the secret sauce right now is, is, you know, getting people to eat more seafood. And we, we often have a problem in this country of the question of what, right? Well, what fish am I allowed to eat? Can I can I eat cod? Is it okay for me to eat a haddock? What what about like something from Iceland or China? Should I eat local? Uh, so what we tend to see when we've done studies and research from our organization side and, and from others is people are paralyzed by indecision when it comes to seafood, and so instead of buying pollock or hake, or something that they're a little bit less familiar with, they go and they buy the chicken, or they buy the beef. And, you know, that's, that's a major problem that that we have. And we're trying to get over that, that, that hump, because it's, it's really, really valuable for our local economies and our brains, uh, and our bodies, and even our ecosystem to eat more seafood. And so that's, that's kind of the the drum that we're we're banging on right now is is how do we get people to eat more local seafood and and telling our story along the way about sustainable fisheries and fighting for the good regulations and empowering the the right fishermen to do the right thing. And it's probably worth mentioning as the raising awareness piece is you guys also have a podcast. Is that correct? We do. Oh, it's fantastic. It's mostly me talking. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like possibly like the second best podcast I've heard about there. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, at least in the top three of the two podcasts that I've heard about, <laughs> I'm fishing. Uh, no, yeah, so we, we have a podcast, Main Coast Doc Talk, and it's uh, more focused on um issues that are popping up on the working waterfront. And so we'll go and we'll interview um, Patrice McCarran from the Maine Lobstermen's Association about the different legal issues that are facing the lobster fleet. Or um, there is a very interesting uh, news report that came out about, uh, you know, investment money going into the groundfish fishery in New Bedford that we interviewed the reporter on. So it's those kind of things that we kind of do deeper dives to get it more directly to the fishermen on, um, you know, to answer their questions and inform them, keep them, keep them updated on what's happening on the, on the working waterfront uh, in Maine. 
Awesome. Main Coast Doc Talk. Yeah, you got it. It's on all, all right. the feeds. All of them. <laughs> Everyone. Just had to make sure we got that in there. Thank you. Uh, so, so, Ben, you had mentioned, you were talking about, you guys really have kind of an all of the above strategy here when it comes to supporting fishermen up there. And I wanted to spend just a little bit of time talking, you know, about the piece that I think we probably, you know, have the most in common, which is the, you know, the fisheries work, right? You guys obviously do a lot of work at, at both the regional, um, you know, and more broadly at the federal levels. And I was just wondering if you could share, you know, from a, from a Maine Coast Fishermen's Association perspective, like, you know, what are the biggest challenges or concerns for you guys right now, you know, from a, from a marine fisheries, you know, sustainability perspective, that's really kind of got you scratching your heads that you guys are spending a lot of time thinking about. Now, Willie, thank you for that question, because uh, as you can tell from the spiel that I've been giving over the past 20 some odd minutes is, uh, we're a nonprofit, so summer is fundraising mode. And so I'm telling stories about like the touchy- It's very well refined, very well refined. Thank you. But I'm telling <laughs> stories that like can connect to the human side of it, right? Uh, but I'm a policy person. It, like that's that's what like gets me excited. And, uh, but I always, I'll be in a room talking to people about the work that we do and you get to see their eyes start to glaze over. I'm like, listen, let me explain to you the three different types of permits and scallops that you need to understand if you want to know that you should be buying main scallops because they're the best. They're dry, they're delicious, eat them. So. There's a plug, eat main scallops. But um, on the policy side, we have a couple of different venues that we do our work. And most of our focus is in federal fisheries policy. So that three miles to 200 miles exclusive economic zone. Um, and in New England is where we do most of our work. But um, we've been a voice fighting for, you know, accountability for a long time. And whether that's in the herring fleet um, and trying to make sure that we control the amount of forage stock that's being harvested out of the Gulf of Maine. Um, unfortunately, we did not get what we wanted to in those regulations. And we're in a spot right now where there's very little herring um, in the ocean. And, and hopefully we're going to see some rebuilding there. Uh, on the groundfish fishery, we worked on pushing for high levels of accountability on the groundfish fleet. Um, and using cameras to, to monitor that fleet. If, if fishermen want to use cameras, we're obviously never going to force that onto, onto a boat. But um, with smaller vessels, we saw that we needed a level playing field. And if you're operating within a quota-based system where every pound of fish that you catch comes out of your bank account, um, and you've got some people that are playing by the rules and others that, that aren't, it it puts you at a severe disadvantage if if you want to be honest out on the water. And we fought hard to make sure that we could have good science, good data and accountability uh, in the New England groundfish fishery. And we built a camera system program with the Nature Conservancy and the Gulf of Maine Research Institute and Cape Cod Commercial Fishermen's Alliance so that small boats could put a camera on their, their vessel and run the camera as opposed to having to take a human observer with them on every trip that they take. And uh, so like that's those are some of the the really nitty gritty detail places that we dig into when it comes to you know the ground fish fishery in New England accountability science data we've we fought to keep access for mains boats in the scallop fishery and and then we bring those same voices and those same concerns to the national level as well um, through some of our work with the fishing community coalition. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, this is something we deal with as well at ASGA, Ben, is, you know, it's it's pretty powerful when a sector kind of shines a spotlight on the need for accountability within its own sector. You know, it's I think that that really can help in terms of moving the needle on it. And obviously, you know, commercial fisheries have their share of issues. Recreational fisheries also have their share of issues with, you know, just the sheer volume of people out in the water and the, you know, the greater level of imprecision at times uh, and lack of real time data. And so it's, you know, it, it's a real challenge. And I think it's just a matter of trying to find ways to address that, you know, you have to kind of figure out, you know, what do you do in the meantime, but then also how do you try to move the needle forward and kind of have those two pieces working in concert? It can be challenging, you know, and it can be frustrating for folks, but it's great to hear that, you know, that's a place where you guys have been, have been doing a lot of work, um, you know, in particular in New England with some of the electronic monitoring and, and the other efforts there. And I think certainly something we're looking to keep advancing on the rec side as well. And, could you just you had mentioned at the end there fishing communities coalition, which I know we've we've worked with a fair amount, and I you know I I know um, Mancos Fishman's is a is a member. Uh, could you just give us a little more background on kind of what that group is and what it's about, and kind of you know how it helps to elevate you guys at the at the national level? Yeah, so we we are very focused as an organization on the Gulf of Maine and Maine in particular, although we do work with with boats in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, to support them, but. Um, Federal fisheries, commercial fisheries is managed through the Magnuson-Stevens Act, right? And that is our our Bible of fisheries management in the United States. And it sets the goalposts for everything we're trying to accomplish, regardless of what region you're in. And it's supposed to be reauthorized every, you know, couple of years, every five years, 10 years. It hasn't been reauthorized in a very long time. And so uh, when it was supposed to be reauthorized uh, about maybe seven years ago, uh, a group of organizations similar to mine uh, got together and said, we think that our voice is really valuable to this to this, this conservation fight that's going to take place in Washington, D.C. And so it was us. It was the Cape Cod Commercial Fishermen's Alliance, Gulf of Mexico Reef Shareholders Alliance, um, a couple of groups in Alaska, including the Alaska Longline Fishermen's Association and the Marine uh, Conservation Council out there. And so essentially we all kind of looked at each other and said, we think that amplifying our voices can be incredibly valuable in this arena. We think that community-based fishermen have a different a different need in this space. And so we wanted to amplify our voices. So we came together and built this coalition. Um, and then Magnuson continues to stall out. And so the idea now is like, it's going to have to be reauthorized at some point, but what's the work that we can do along the way to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for success in the reauthorization's future, but also nibble at the pieces around the edges of fisheries management. So whether that is, um, we we passed a, we actually passed a bill as as the fishing community coalition through Congress and got it signed into law. That was the Young Fishermen's Development Act, uh, which creates a, a fund to support next you know the training of the next generation of fishermen. Which you know not to pat ourselves on the back, but it took us five years. But it like uh, passing a bill it's, is it's pretty a, cool, it's a, right? It's a pretty it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> uh, so we, we did that. And that was a great way to like, it was very something that our, our organizations identified is really important. But it was also like, it was a way to get in and tell our stories to a lot of different offices and share the hopes and dreams of this next generation of fishermen and how science and accountability and all those things are a part of that future. Uh, 
and and so you know that's that's what the fishing co- fishing community coalition uh, does is is you know we are trying to figure out how to amplify those community-based fishermen's voices who believe in sustainability, believe in their communities, believe in those those rural communities having access as being important was um, was really a founding a founding piece of that. And so we're we're an active voice in DC at this point, trying to make sure that um, whether it's Magnuson or you know we were heavily involved in the COVID relief process to make sure that fishermen had had some money in in those bills and the CARES Act and and uh, and whatnot, and worked with our congressional delegation like Senator Collins and others to make sure that 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 happened. And so. Um, yeah, so that that's the stuff that the Fishing Community Coalition does, and and we've been really thankful to have you guys um, as a partner on the rec side to kind of make sure that we can share with the congressional delegations out there and and you know others in in NOAA Fisheries that it's you know we can work together when we understand that there is shared values and shared commitment towards good science and good management and stewardship at the core of what we are all collectively trying to accomplish. For sure. And I think Magnuson is an excellent example. You know, as you've said, you know, we're, we're a little stalled right now, but I think, you know, all those issues we, you know, we've, we've heard about, you know, whether it's climate ready fisheries, promptly rebuilding stocks, you know, forage, all of those pieces, um, you know, there's, there's ways to move the needle in the interim. And I think it's, it's great to see, you know, FCC continuing to be a part of that conversation and we're, uh, we're glad to play a supporting role there. So it's, it's great to see. Uh, and, you know, toward, just toward one last thing I wanted to talk about, Ben, is something you had mentioned earlier that's kind of to this point, which is about kind of being the fisherman's voice and getting fishermen into the conversation. And I think it's, you know, it's great for you and me and for other folks to, you know, go to Capitol Hill and have this conversation. And that's that's all well and good. But it's 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 different for that person who, you know, you're your gillnetter who's on the water, you know, 20 hours a day or, you know, our guys who are on the water 120 days in a row during the summer doing charters and stuff. You know, it's different. It's it hits different when those folks are are taking it upon themselves to be part of the conversation. And I just, you know, we've certainly spent a lot of time trying to get folks engaged. You know, we had this big Amendment 7 process for striped bass. Um, that was a big victory for us this past spring. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering from from your perspective, you know, what what works? You know, how do you get those guys to really be um, to take it upon themselves and recognize the return that can come from their personal involvement in these efforts? Yeah, it's a it's a real struggle. Um, and, you know, I've been at the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association for 11 years now, and it's becoming a greater and greater struggle every year to get fishermen to engage in the political process because of the divide that we have um, in this country, but also because a lot of times they show up and they talk and they don't feel like they're being heard, right? And that and that doesn't mean that somebody has to do what they say, but it does mean that they want to feel listened to and respected. And it's it's really hard when you show up to council meetings or you go to DC and you know, fishermen take a lot of time and energy out of their day to to do that. And they they walk away and they're like, oh, that was a waste of time. And so we always try and build in that feedback loop of success. And that's why, you know, the the Young Fishermen's Development Act was such an amazing win for us because we brought fishermen to D.C. over a five year period. Uh, And some of those people that we brought with us were in high school that now graduated and they're able to look back and, you know, write a school report about the work that they did and and the success that they had um, being a part of that process. And, you know, that that made that really special because we were able to bring parents and kids together and, and talk and share and 
Um, and so it's really hard, but fisheries management moves slow and it is, um, that, that makes it the engagement process difficult for fishermen. So what we try and do is the heavy lifting in between as an organization. And so we do the prep, we do the, you know, getting fishermen ready for any meetings that they're going to walk into. We go to all the boring stuff in between so that when they walk into the room, they are the rock stars. And that's, that's our goal is not have it to be, you know, the Ben Martens show. We want those fishermen when they take the time to show up to get all the attention and the support and the love that they need um, to feel heard. And that's, that's, it's a struggle. Um, and it's becoming a bigger struggle in some of the new arenas that we have to engage in. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of like the boom process and offshore wind where it's like, sorry, fishermen, you actually don't even have a seat at the table but you're going to be severely impacted. And so that's where we are trying to carve out processes where we can continue to promote engagement and listening um, and bring their ideas into the process so that they can feel like, um, not only feel like they're being hurt, but like actually get hurt, right? Like, I don't really care about the feelings. I want the results. And and that's that's really hard, but it's yeah, that, that's my, my biggest takeaway is like, you need to leave with a lot of high fives going around, but like a feeling of a feeling of like a meaning meaningfulness uh, along the way. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And that was a good way of articulating it because there's kind of this sweet spot, right? Like you don't want people to be like rah, rah all the time. And then, you know, there's kind of this cried wolf mentality, right? Where you get people all whipped up to do something and then nothing happens. Um, but you also don't want to to let things get to the point where that input that could be really highly meaningful, um, that, that that door closes. So it's kind of a, you know, there's there's some level of kind of art and science in defining that zone. But I mean, it's it's great to hear that you guys are are working to make it happen, you know, at the, at the main coast community level. And we're, we're doing it here on the, on the rec side, you know, same idea, trying to find that zone. I think, you know, one, one thing that I just wanted to mention, I think for us and maybe for you as well, I think sometimes the, the research and science can be a good way in the door as well. So I don't know if you've had that with, you know, any of the electronic monitoring work or anything else, but certainly for us, you know, um, trying to get folks engaged in the research to really bring them in the door and, and get them engaged to see kind of their work, you know, going into a product that then can inform the process. I think that's been something that, that we've seen as an effective tool as well. Yeah, we, oh. you know, this is just you and me talking, right? Nobody's going to listen to this. Uh, no, it's, it's actually, it is a tool that we use. Um, but it's becoming a more difficult one to engage in, in real reality because science is becoming harder and harder to engage in with fishermen because they've been removed from the process for, for so many years. You know, we used to have a lot of cooperative research that took place where fishermen either had questions or ideas or were actually their platforms were being used. Um, there's a pretty severe disconnect between what fishermen are seeing out on the water and what scientists at NOAA Fisheries are saying is out in the ocean. And that goes in two directions, right? Like I'm not a commercial fishing representative here saying like, oh, there's way more cod than there. You know, it like we'll be sitting here saying, you keep telling us there's an abundance of pollock out in the ocean. We can't find it. We're good at finding fish. Like this is an inappropriate number to be putting out there telling us to go catch this. Um, yep. And so that that disconnect is is a problem. And we are really encouraging um, our science center and our, you know, federal partners to try and use science as a tool again to re-engage. Like it is a huge opportunity to build trust within a system to engage like the fishermen who are out on the water, whether it's recreational or commercial, the most 
get them to engage in the scientific process, that builds buy-in. And we need buy-in right now more than anything when it comes to the process, um, both science and management. And, and it's, it's lacking. That, that engagement is, is starting, to, starting to go down significantly on the scientific side. And so I would you know, plug, plug, plug the idea of you know, the citizen-based science, community science, like that is the type of thing to re-energize and create new data streams to inform our stock assessments that because of climate change and offshore development are going to be completely disrupted. And so it's, it's time to rethink how we do our science and um, relying on those who use our oceans is a great way to start thinking differently. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's my hope on it. No, I, I hear you. That's a, a good place to go. I think, yeah, getting, getting disillusioned, it can be hard to bring folks back from that, but it's, it's, you know, it's definitely a good thing to strive for. And I'm glad to hear that's kind of where you guys are up there as well. Certainly the Gulf of Maine, the Western Gulf of Maine has experienced its share of abuse over the past couple of decades. And uh, hopefully we can, we can turn a corner and start thinking toward a, a more productive future up there for, you know, monkfish stew and everything else that people love to eat from the Gulf of Maine. So, um, well, Ben, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on here uh you know we're really encouraged to hear about all the great work you guys are doing thinking about uh supporting maine's fishermen you know from all angles on the water and off uh you know i look forward to to, to getting a, a frozen box of monkfish stew one of these weeks and trying that out and seeing if it's just as delicious as you say and uh, also of course we'll be tuning into the main doc talk podcast i'm sure all of our listeners will be as well really that's fantastic i'll, I'll just do one final plug uh Go to our website if you don't know about us. We've got a bunch of great videos. We've got our podcasts. We've got some oral histories, beautiful photography. We're very fortunate to have uh, a lot of great imagery of our of our work. And we've got a merchandise store. So please go. Don't just don't just like us. Wear us. And uh, we've got a great cookbook, t-shirts, sweatshirts. Let's go and check it out. Um, we we really love to find new ways to you know spread the word, spread the gospel, and um, we want to work together with you. So we're we're really excited. Awesome. Well, we appreciate the time. Ben Martens, everybody. Thank you, Willie. We'll talk soon.